Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that wants you to know the internet isn't always a paradise of skeleton memes, doot doot, and fire selfies. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to say the doot doot because I promised Ambria I would say it. Oh, <laughs> so on today's show we have hope and Walida. yay and today we're diving into the wild world of being a lefty lady on the internet and specifically how to stay safe in the increasingly perilous hellscape we're living in yay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. <laughs> definitely a thing that walita and i know a thing or two about um and also i wanted to note here that reporting hate and threatening speech on facebook and twitter is a favorite hobby of mine at the moment and i do it pretty much like people do crafts in the evenings yeah it's a great hobby it's a super good time <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am pumped as hell that we have new host, a new host with us today and two extremely knowledgeable guests, Allison and Janice. So can we start with both of you telling us a little more about yourselves and your backgrounds? And we'll start with you, Allison. Nonprofit called the Library Freedom Project. I teach librarians about fighting surveillance. And I also do a lot of um, teaching of like anti-doxing and digital security and, and threat modeling and that kind of thing to leftists all over the place. Awesome. Hi, um, I'm Janice. I, um, I've been for the past decade or so um, a journalist, um, mostly covering cybersecurity and surveillance and privacy. And um, more recently, I've sort of taken on a bit of a more active role working with groups in the New York City area um, training activists on how to um, secure digital communications and operate um, and do um, sort of like actions with um, greater levels of safety and also designing workshops that are designed to basically make people aware and start thinking about the implications of data um, used in various different ways um, by law enforcement agencies and others. Um, through the use of machine learning, which creates a lot more value for data than it previously had. Equally awesome. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, so we're just going to dive in. There's a lot to cover. Um, and I wanted to mention something I've been thinking a lot about lately, especially with this latest violence with the Proud Boys in New York, is just how the alt-right and nationalist groups seem to be pretty good at using online spaces to spread their messaging. And it just seems like, in particular, it's really fertile ground for anything, you know, racist, homophobic, misogynistic. Um, It's really galvanizing for them. So I wanted to know if there's anything we, either as a society or as organizers, should be doing about this. Like, is it the responsibility of the hosting platforms or what what should we do? Um, I guess I could start. Um, So, yeah, that um, you mentioned about the the New York um, sort of like violence that went on um, outside of the Republican club recently. And that was um, uh, really sort of like drove home some things that a lot of people in some of my communities have been trying to tell people for a long time, which is that we can't rely on police and on sort of, you know, these sort of institutions of power to punish um, what they are actually like explicitly and implicitly aligned with, which is this sort of like fascist alt-right misogynistic sort of current. 
Um, and so I guess it's kind of goes the same way when you speak about platforms. Um, I think that it's definitely worth it to try and work within those systems and try and work with platform hosts and, you know, like companies like Twitter and Facebook to report, you know, as you said, it's, it is a very good hobby to just be to be reporting, um, uh, you know, like bad stuff all the time. Um, I know that there is a project out um, of this one group that I organized with in New York that flags YouTube videos that are sort of meant to be sort of extremist videos that are meant to recruit and spread all of this misinformation uh, that leads to sort of like this like racist violence. Um, and they have this sort of plugin that you can install in your browser, which will that makes the the process of reporting YouTube videos that are white supremacist, white nationalist, misogynist um, in nature a little bit easier. And so I'm 100% for those those methods. I think that there's also a lot of stuff going on in this space that has to do with sort of just going to the other side and doxing um, the people who are responsible for these things. Um, and I know we're probably going to talk about doxing as a bad thing later. Um, but uh, in this case, in particular, a lot of the people who were ID'd in those photos from the event in New York um, were previously known. And that's because there were these um, Discord leaks where um, the, the Discord channels that were used during Unite the Right, the Charlottesville Nazi white supremacist rally, um, contained a lot of the same people. And so as a result of those leaks of all of those chat logs, um, we found out a lot of things. Um, specifically, um, there was, you know, this, the, the guy who um, drove the car and killed Heather Hare in Charlottesville, who plowed the car into that crowd of people, um, was actually found recently. Um, someone noticed, on uh, a friend of mine, Emily, noticed that in the photo, one of the photos that he's in, he's standing directly next to um, this other guy who recently was convicted um, and sentenced to 14 years on terrorism charges for trying to derail an Amtrak train. So, wow. you know, we, we, we look at some of these networks and, you know, it's, it's very useful to sort of, um, to sort of uh, have people who are, you know, going and trying to engage with the platform managers and trying to report and trying to, you know, get this material off of the platforms. And I think that to some extent that's been pretty effective in terms of pressuring Twitter, pressuring um, Google to do to do more about this problem. Um, but I think that there's also, you know, these these um, these sort of um, methods that have been taken that have also been effective of this sort of like finding out who these people are and sort of naming and shaming them. And I think that that's been really effective. I want to plus one what Jana said. And I also want to add a few things, uh, some context about the fash and uh, how much better they are kind of at the internet than we are, unfortunately. Part of the reason is that you can trace the current climate of doxing and harassment and fascist organizing um, straight back to Gamergate. And, and even further than that, back to people like Weave. So these, are, these guys have been organizing on multiple platforms online for years, and they're, they're actually very savvy at it. And I want to mention that because I think it's important when we think about how we want to fight them and protect ourselves, because there are some issues with relying on um, 
the existing channels for reporting harassment and reporting bad behavior. I totally agree that mass reporting them and and all this uh, is good and platforms should have strong codes of conduct. But I also want to point out that these people are very good at gaming the system. And so we just have to take care uh, to recognize that a lot of the same tools that we're using for trying to take down like fascist presence online, they are used against us. So one example is like, think about how often people on the left get mass reported by people on the right using Twitter's code of conduct that is not uniformly enforced. It seems to be more enforced against people on the left. So just like the same kind of argument that's made about like free speech or whatever, you know, if you make certain limitations to it, it gets used against marginalized people. We've seen the same thing happen with the platforms and I don't really have a good answer to what, like what's a, what we should do. I just want to, I just want to like note it. Um, but beyond that, I think that uh, in general, it's really good for us to have what I like to call an adversarial mindset. So we have to think the way that they think, and then that can help us kind of um, take steps to protect ourselves and um, organize self-defense. You know, so, um, you know, understanding how, like, they're going to use our tactics against us, um, understanding the, the way that they... Um, will go after us and the kind of information that they'll use can help us to change our behavior somewhat so that we can safely organize online. And we'll talk about like the specifics of that behavior changing, I think later on in this conversation. Yeah. I'm yeah. really glad to hear you say that and just point out how good um, they are at using the platforms and gaming the system. It's kind of like the, the part of the, the art of war teachings that you should uh, shouldn't underestimate your enemies and I think on the left we tend to just think like oh they're so dumb um, and really play that up but that's at our peril for sure yeah they are dumb but they're also like clever you know what I mean it's a weird paradox yeah um yeah you're right they are they are dumb and they are dumb and clever um so, well, actually, I was actually just curious if you think um, that things have, so you said this was sort of born out of uh, Gamergate, which we all um, remember and love, um, <laughs> but also, um, so do you think things have gotten generally worse under this administration? I feel like, I feel like white supremacists in general have felt a little bit more emboldened um, the last couple years. Uh, do you think that that the stuff online and the doxing and everything online has gotten worse since Trump uh, was elected? Oh, I think so. Definitely. Um, I think that it's, it, you know, it has a pretty bad lineage, you know, I mean, Gamergate was no picnic. Um, but I think what's different now is not just that, like, white supremacists and fascists are have come out from the sewers um, and, and are organizing more openly. Um, but I also think that even with some of the actions that have been taken, you know, there's some of these big accounts have been banned and there's been some really excellent journalism. Like just recently, my dear friend, April Glazer in Slate, uh, did a whole piece about some of the, uh, the discord organizing that these, these folks are doing. Um, while all of that information is so important for 
us on the left because we need it for tactical reasons, it doesn't really seem to have a, a demonstrable effect on lessening the fascist presence online. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know if Janice would agree with me or not, but, uh, you know, I, I also think the other thing that I see happening is the right using, um, it, using the internet and using information that they've gleaned from the internet to infiltrate and dox and harass um, leftist movements, not just the way that, like Gamergate was doxing prominent women, feminists, trans people. Um, uh, the, what, what I see the right doing now is going after movements that are um, strong and effective and trying to um, weaken or create chaos in them by using doxing harassment techniques, like the Project Veritas thing going after DCDSA, yeah. for example. Yeah. yeah. Um, should yeah. we just uh, should we just keep men offline? Is there a way to just do that? <laughs> Sounds like a just silence them entirely. <laughs> I don't prefer that they not speak. Yeah, that would be great. That or be great. I mean, could we just have like a you know female approval process for their comments? That seems totally fair. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, like, like that. three three women. Yeah, three women have to sign off on each one. Yep, exactly. <laughs> God, but think about the labor that we'd have to put out for that, though. You know, it's like, do I really want to have to read every single piece of shit thing that a man says? Oh, oh well, for what it's worth, we were going to tax the men for this service and then pay the women moderators a living wage. So it's going to work out great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there it is. Uh, um, so yeah. I, in talking about all of this, we've been kind of like, talking about it more generally but I wanted to ask if any of you have been doxxed before um and also what should people do if they are doxxed Janice do you want to go first I haven't been doxxed um knock on desk <laughs> <laughs> well I have uh, um yeah 8chan tried to dox me last year they failed fucking losers um awesome Good. they um they tried to dox me after I went to an anti-Richard Spencer protest and they saw some pictures of me holding some anti-fascist signs. And there was some other stuff. I mean, I'm not, and still to this day, I'm not entirely sure how, what put me on their radar, but I was contacted by, the story kind of tells you some of what I, what I recommend now to people, um, for you know, people who are, are in the process of being doxxed or who want to do some doxing prevention. So I found out because some anonymous angel who trawls uh, 8chan and 4chan looking for you know doxing campaigns that are getting started, somebody, this person emailed me and was like, I want to warn you that this is happening. So that's a piece of advice number one. If you have the stomach for it, um, especially if you're a person of privilege of some variety, you know, that's a good thing you can do for your comrades is like, you know, uh, on an empty stomach, like go and read 8chan and, and see if, if they're, if they're going after people and then warn those people. Uh, so I, so they started trying to dox me and they, you know, they pulled up my, my selfies from Twitter and they made fun of my, my Mediterranean good looks and they, um, you know, they were like trying to figure out where I lived and they couldn't really figure it out uh, because I've lived in several places over the last few years. 
And so they, that actually was kind of good because they, they concluded that I was some kind of like California drifter. I've never (laughs) lived in California. Um, and they hate Californians. Um, and so they, it, it kind of like set them down some weird rabbit hole. Um, and, and part of what, what made it difficult for them was that because I've been working on, uh, security and anti-surveillance stuff for years, I've gone through my Google search results and I've removed info on data brokers and I try to keep pretty good data hygiene. But nevertheless, it, it revealed a lot of the vulnerabilities that I wasn't aware of. In a way, I'm glad it happened because I got to see how effective I had been and it helped me when giving advice to other people later. But even with the protections that I had put in place for myself, and that's piece of advice number two is that I think, um, you know, I can, there's a, there's a, a number of different data brokers that uh, you've surely seen if you've ever searched yourself, each of them have opt out links, go through and take the, the painstaking step of opting out and getting your data removed, even as much of a pain in the ass as it is, it will help you later if someone tries to dox you because usually that's where they're getting the data from. So... Yeah. I had done this already, um, so there was very little out there, but they found some stuff about some family members. They were trying to find out, like, the name of my former partner's child, just things like that, and it was really frightening. So having gone through that, another thing I would recommend is that if, if, you, if you are being doxxed, have somebody else keep an eye on it because I was just staring at that for, like, days, just refreshing 8chan, watching them talk about me, and I shouldn't have been. Um, so it's an act of solidarity to other people to keep an eye on that and also make sure that you're safe. I mean, you know, if there are credible threats or anything, you know, take the threat seriously if they make them. The other piece of advice that I would give is that it's probably going to be fine. Most of these don't turn into like a full campaign. Um, but if somebody you know is going through it, like, you know, be there for them. That's really the most important thing. Yeah. Would you recommend actually becoming a California drifter? <laughs> I Yeah, I think so, actually. I mean, but the, the problem with that is that then they, they would hate you even more. It's like <laughs> communist, <laughs> feminist, you know, like Sounds amazing. atheist. Yeah, right. Yeah, They exactly. would hate you, but they what couldn't a nice, find like, you. Lesbian, you know, just like all the check all the boxes all the stuff Um, that they can't handle yeah it's a it's a lifestyle it's a lifestyle i just like imagining if if enough people listening end up taking these security precautions that like all of like hn is just going to be thinking everyone is california drifters because they can't find where they live (laughs) (laughs) we should have a step-by-step process on how to make ourselves california drifters online so that yes. anyone who's docs, that's just that's just what they think about. Who we are. It's the like best a, prevention. That needs to be a Snapchat filter, so you can just take <laughs> selfies to give you like a California drifter background. Yep. Nice. Trust me, I'm a California drifter. This is where you can find me. This is how we get people to get into making themselves more secure online. I think is to do it with like we the the drifter story. I think this is going to be huge. It's, it's really hard to make yourself secure online. So I don't, so I, by trade, I am a software developer, but that doesn't mean like, I know a lot about cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is like this whole separate world where like, I have to spend a lot of time reading about it, reading how to do it. Um, And I've never been doxxed, although it's, 
I would imagine it'd be super easy because my name is, I'm basically the only one in the world with this name. Um, um, but there's other stuff that can happen online to you that's awful, like someone hacking into your stuff, um, which is the worst. So other than doxing, what are some of the other risks like for our, for our listeners that they should be thinking about to start like looking into how to take precautions to protect themselves? Um, I think when it comes to protests, like on the ground um, actions, um, there's a lot to be learned in terms of um, learning what your situation is at any given time. And I think that um, we've seen some examples recently, and I think um, Allison may have mentioned this a bit earlier, um, that, you know, during the J20 um, protests, there was a great example where, you know, there was a signal group that they were all in, but they didn't have disappearing messages on. And so those messages wound up getting used um, sort of in the court, um, in the court filings against these 230-something people who were arrested and charged. And um, fortunately, all the charges were dropped, um, with the exception of one person who pleaded out. Um, so that was like a good result, but you know, it's kind of a huge risk to take when you have your phone. And like the other thing to think about that I think doesn't get discussed enough is that everyone, everyone's individual phone security is going to be different, and that's a huge liability. Um, the thing I always tell activists on the ground when they're in a situation where it looks like the police are getting aggressive or, you know, there might be a chance of arrest to just always lock your phone um, away from the fingerprint. So to turn off fingerprint authentication, face authentication. And on the iPhone, you can do that by hitting the power button five times. Um, and I believe on most versions of the iPhone, the most, most newer iPhones, um, it will automatically turn off the fingerprint off and it will make you type in a passcode. And the reason why that's important is because um, according to the law, as we understand it, um, mm -hmm. the Fifth Amendment, which protects against self-incrimination, protects basically against, you know, the police can't arrest you and then say, hey, give us your password um, to your phone, like you have to tell us. Like they can't force you to do that because it's something that you know in your mind and they can't compel you to, you know, uh, surrender the contents of your mind is the, is the wording right uses. but if you lock your phone with a with a, a pass like a um, fingerprint or a face then those are not the contents of your mind that's a physical part of your body and so that's fair game as far as the law is concerned to the best that we understand it and there's been one case i think at least that has tested this and they've come up they've come out saying yeah um, you know a face isn't a password you know, fingerprint isn't a password because it doesn't exist in your head. Um, and so the other concern there is also that, you know, we, we don't all have iPhones and Android phones have, you know, in general, a lot worse security and encryption than iPhones do. And, you know, Apple is doing a really good job now um, at sort of like stepping up the game in terms of um, how hard it is to get into um, an encrypted iPhone, but not everybody has an iPhone. And I think that it's, you know, we need to consider these things, especially when you were when we're organizing groups, um, because a lot of people, you know, can't an iPhone are going to get sort of, you know, cheaper Android phones, and they may not all have the same set features and encryption. And so um, I'm not sure exactly what the solution of that is, um, besides to sort of like push 
the tech industry to start developing these things more equitably um, so that we can like start to you know not have security and encryption be sort of like a, a buy-in thing that only like people who are wealthy have um, so I think that that's really important as well yeah so thinking about actual like physical security of your phone um, and what they can and can't get into <clears throat> Okay. Do you think there are separate risks for, for organizations like DSA um, or any other leftist group, like how they should be thinking about and approaching their security protocol? So I think that groups like DSA and organized leftist groups do have a, a, a different set of risks. Um, they're related to the same two threat models that Janice was just talking about with law enforcement, what we were talking about earlier with like organized street fascists, whatever you want to call them. Um, but the risks are a little bit different and it has to do with a few things. One, one thing we've seen happening with organized leftist groups, especially the more successful they get and the more high profile is attempts at infiltration. So Project Veritas just tried to infiltrate DSA and a few other different groups, I think. Um, you know, there have been uh, instances of in-person meetings where fascists will show up and steal paper sign-in sheets. Um, you know, they'll take photos of everybody in the room, that kind of thing. So there's just, there's just a different set of things that happened at a collective level than, um, what would happen to an individual. I also think that there's something true about how people, when they're in an organized group, they tend to feel a sense of protection and that's a good thing. It's good to feel solidarity with your comrades, um, but it can it can lead to a, a kind of carelessness, like people feel like nothing bad will happen to them. But that's totally not true. I mean, right. a lot of what Jana said regarding the law enforcement threat model, like um, we really do have to start imagining um, a future where you know, as protest and and organizing becomes kind of criminalized. Um, the, the way that we're organizing amongst ourselves could end up in the hands of police and prosecutors, not to mention all those organized street fascists. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very true. So what kind of issues do you think particularly affect women in online spaces? Um, we've already decided that men should not be online ever. Um, but since we can't enforce it like by tomorrow morning, what types of things should women be thinking about when they're online? I know that like women are like, you know, generally speaking, like the doxing stories I've heard and the harassment stories I've heard, generally women are the recipients of this. Yeah, um, women. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Women are way more likely to be doxed and harassed. I mean, just like I don't have the numbers in front of me, but anecdotally, I know that it's some order of magnitude more. Um, you know, the most of the, what we see in internet fascist alt-right culture derived straight from Gamergate. Um, you know, they started out with misogynist poison that turned into full-blown fascist poison. Um, so, you know, I think that, that we as women, uh, are just way bigger targets. Um, and also there's a whole, whole other side of this that, that is, um, a political thing, but doesn't have to do so much with our political work. And that is that there are so many ways for exes um, or just abusive stalker men to use different tools 
to stalk us. Like there are apps for phones that will stalk people's locations. Um, You know, there's like revenge porn. There's just all kinds of things. So yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, a gendered angle to that for sure. Yeah. It's even called stalkerware. Like I think that's been like sort of the, the, the name given to this sort of category of sort of apps that, um, I think there was um there was a motherboard expose that was on this a couple of a couple of journalists that I used to work with um did this huge expose about this one particular um app called Flexispy and it's actually now sort of manipulate it's actually sort of multiplied and there are several examples of this now and and they're basically explicitly used for you know like a husband like a sort of like jaded husband who's trying to sort of like keep tabs on his wife and all these all these really terrible stories that come, come from that that's horrifying um speaking of shit that women have to deal with um i was wondering uh if anyone so has has any advice for dealing with trolls and like how do we know a troll from a bot or fake account and it's okay if the answer is just like ignore them or block them but i didn't know if they're like, should we be engaging? Is it not worth it? Are they all like Russian spies? I don't understand. I like to spend as little time in my mentions as humanly possible. That's just been my very simple solution to this. Yeah, I think men should have to pay to speak to us um, in men. general. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in this. You know, how do we tell a troll um, from a bot or fake account? Um, I would love to say that I know exactly how to like tell a bot or fake account, but I know that I've like argued with bots before and then felt really silly. However, I mean, you know, they, um, you know, in some ways it almost doesn't even matter, right? It's like six of one, half a dozen of the other. They, they do like kind of follow a script. Um, and like, you know, they, they have, you know, different things about their profiles kind of in common. Um, you know, they look like, um, you know, they're kind of like generated in a lab or whatever. Um, but I think just like engaging with trolls and your mentions, like trying to spend time figuring out if something is a bot or a real person is a waste of your beautiful, precious time. And you should be, um, doing a face mask or like just (laughs) singing to yourself in the mirror or something like that. You should be appreciating yourself instead of looking at the internet. Totally. I do all the time. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. I do, um, digital strategy consulting as my day job and it's mostly with nonprofit clients. And it happens to be typically like women that we're working with at these companies. And it's so fun when, they come to us and like, oh, we ran this ad, but people keep saying horrible things. What should we do? And we're just like, delete and block them. And they just get this, like, they have this beautiful moment of liberation where they're like, Mm -hmm. I can do that. I can just make them go away. And we're like, they're not going to donate to you. Kick them out forever. Um, Uh, Delete and block uh, app, but for real life. I delete and block Mm -hmm. you in real life. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Allison, do you think that like things like block together have been effective? Because I know that that's been like something that a lot of trans women have used and sort of like. Yeah, I think for the most part, um, block lists um, like block together can be really good. Although I will say that I'm I feel like I'm on some like Bernie bro block 
block together list or something because I'm blocked by all these people for no reason. And so, I, I mean, I guess, like, you have to accept some collateral damage in that. Um, but I think, um, in particular, there's a campaign against you, like, massive mass block lists can be really good for achieving some peace of mind. And is there such a thing as, like, shadow banning? I've heard about that, but I'm not really sure what it is. Oh, is that that thing that the right wing is obsessed with, where they think that um, yeah, when you search for their name, it doesn't show up? No, yeah. it's like some yeah. dumb Twitter bug. Yeah, those people, I mean, it's like all manufactured outrage with them. It's definitely not real, but we should, like, I don't, I don't know whether it's good to, like, lie to them and pretend like it's real to just fuel their outrage so that they have like so that one of them will have an aneurysm or something um or if we yes. should like right, actually, we should do that. actually <laughs> say no more yes <laughs> yes make the problem solved anger. yes done make fascists <laughs> have aneurysms again that is <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> All right. So because we like to give listeners things to feel optimistic and empowered about, I wanted to ask what are some security tips you brilliant women would recommend that people do kind of just as a baseline for security? So there's just one thing like so. So I think a lot of people probably don't know the difference between like someone who's doxing you or someone who's like hacking you, right? Like when you're, when you're sort of in this world and, and know all these terminologies, you, you know the difference between these things. But generally speaking, like you can protect your account for most hackers by turning on things like double authentication and using a password manager and not clicking on links you don't know, um, like the DNC did uh, when all their stuff was hacked, um, you know. So like there's a process called phishing and there's a process called spear phishing and phishing is just like some group of hackers is going to send out, a, I don't know, an endless amount of emails that hopefully someone will open and click and now bam, they've, they've in, embedded some sort of executable bug in that link and now they've got control of all your accounts and your computer or whatever it is that they're going for. And then there's something called spear phishing where like they have focused very specifically on you. Like they are going to spend hours and hours and hours and, and resources, time and money to try to get into your accounts. And something that I was surprised to learn about that, that probably most people would be surprised to learn about is, you know, when you're the sole target of a hacker, when someone wants to get into your personal stuff, they, they don't just do things like try to guess your password. If Even if your passwords are very difficult to figure out, they'll do things like call your credit card company and pretend to be you to try to get your password changed. Um, they'll have sound effects of babies crying in the background to like stress the, the uh, customer service person out and like do what they can to like pretend they're you or pretend they're your partner or pretend they're your child or something um, to try to get your account information. And a few changes on how you log into your accounts can like help protect you from that. And it requires some time to sit and like do to your accounts. And this is the thing I find most difficult for people to get people to, to do, like spend the time to go into your accounts, change your passwords, do the double authentication um, to make sure that if someone is trying to get in, you're notified or they need an extra layer of account of like security to get in. Um, and also to like make people understand that you know, there's no such thing as 100% secure. What, whatever you put out there in the world is most likely just out there forever. Um, 
governments are probably always going to be able to get into your stuff because they have the time and they have the resources to do it. But generally speaking, most people can be safe most of the time by making these changes. So how do you get people to sort of think about it and shift their context that way to, to sort of invest the time to do these things to protect themselves online? Yeah, totally. And the, the concept, um, the very important concept here is called threat modeling. That's what we, that's what we call it in security. And it's basically just you know, what Allison was saying, understanding what your threat space is and who your most likely adversaries are, and then focusing and sort of protecting yourself against the most likely threats instead of going like full tinfoil, um, because that's always really bad for your time and your energy and your mental health. Um, right. There's other things I think that can be added to that maybe a little bit less on the practical side but just like something that i like to encourage people to think about is just the value of their data and specifically like there's a part of the threat modeling process where you think about what are the what are the types of data that i have that are valuable and why are they valuable and what could adversaries potentially do if they got access to it and i think that it's very important to remember sometimes that that the threat model will evolve and specifically the value of your data will evolve and we've seen this um over just the past several years become pretty apparent um when it comes when it comes to how easily we give out data to you know say facebook or twitter because i think that people who sort of you know uploaded selfies to facebook years ago um weren't really understanding what the future value of that photo would be in terms of like how data rich it is. Um, you know, we were thinking sort of, oh, if I upload a selfie to Facebook or to Twitter or whatever, you know, humans will be able to maybe recognize me. Um, but, you know, we weren't thinking that about what that piece of data actually is right now, which is basically a repository of biometric information. Um, because that's what a face photo is at this point. It's a biometric identifier. Right. And governments and you know government agencies and police they use these things now and we have you know a lot of reporting has has come out about the FBI's face recognition database and how it incorporates you know photos of people who have never been convicted of a crime and you know this is sort of we're, we're trying to sort of envision how data can be might become more valuable later which is really hard to do but I think that like that's sort of all the more reason to sort of really fight back when this mass collection happens because once all of that data is mass collected it doesn't matter what the value of the data was when it was collected it matters whatever value it has later on whatever can be sort of ascertained from it and then you see that a lot when it comes to you know a focus that i've been that's something i've been focusing on a lot in the last couple of years which has been machine learning and predictive algorithms mm -hmm. and a lot of that data you know you see a lot more really intimate details about human behavior that mm -hmm. can be ascertained based on following you know a person's you know whether it's like photos that someone posted or their location data and basically you know we're not really into the point where it's hypothetical anymore in terms of like the value of biometric information because it's essentially become raw materials for face recognition algorithms and other types of predictive analysis. Um, 
Right. I think one one good example of this um, recently, I guess it's probably a bit more on topic for this audience, is that um, there was this app called Find Face, which was made by this Russian company um, about a couple of years ago, and it was basically used um, essentially like the the sort of like stated feature of this was that you could take a photo of someone in public and then it would compare that photo against a repository of photos that's hosted on uh, vcontacty, which is like the Russian version of Facebook. And so basically it would take, you know, and, and it was really kind of creepy. And what wound up happening uh, was that there was a bunch of stories that came out about how these online harassers were using it to dox and harass sex workers and porn stars and basically like, you know, out them to their families and yeah. do all this, this stuff. And, you know, and the creator of this, um, the creator of this tool, like even bragged, like, you know, yeah, you could like see a woman on the street and then like find out, you know, who she is immediately and like use it to stalk them. So like, this is something that, you know, I think that just wraps back into this idea of, you know, we need to consider how the value of our data might change in the future. Wow, that's terrifying. That was the same thing with that Google, was it the Google thing that the, like last year or the year before where they were saying upload your picture and we'll compare it to a painting or something? Like oh, a Renaissance yeah. painting? I was like, yeah, everybody like, please stop uploading your photograph to Google. Like, please stop doing this. This is like, oh my God. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that sounds that sounds absolutely horrifying. Yeah, I mean, the future sucks. Um, and, like, computers are not right our now. friends. And, like, it, you know, all this technology is being built by men, for the most part, yeah. who have not considered any of the unintended consequences. I mean, I think, I think that probably the vast majority of them are not, they, they're well-meaning. In fact, even yeah. worse than that, they think that they're saving the world. They're like disrupting or whatever the fuck. Um, <laughs> they sure but think they they're disrupting. Yeah, <laughs> but, they, but because they lack um, any diversity of experience, um, you know, they, they aren't considering how these things can be used against um, marginalized people. And even worse, as we know from the last year or so, in fact, there are a lot of these motherfuckers who are actively, um, like, are working on the on the on for the right wing, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, to everything that Janice said, like, part of kind of threat modeling is is recognizing technology as technology has politics. It's made by people, and you know we love to enjoy all the great things that computers give us, but we should really, we have to be really cautious about them. And I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm victim blaming or anything because it's totally not our fault if we use them the way that, that we've been socialized into using them. But I also think it's a good thing if we just like kind of like for lack of a better way to put it, if we just like log off every once yeah. in a while, you know, like you don't have to don't tweet that or don't put it on Facebook or like, just be a little bit more careful about what you say on the internet. Like imagine, you know, this thing that you're about to post or like put on your phone or whatever, like, do you want fascists and cops to see it? Yeah, but that's a good way to throw them validation? Out. How are we going to get them validated? <laughs> no. 
Look, the validation doesn't last anyway, right? So, you know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> At some point, the likes stop coming in. That's so. right. At some point, we all die. At some so, point, we definitely all die. Yeah. That's, that's really the moral of the story. You can't take the lights with you when you die. That's true. Yeah. No. <laughs> Man, we are uh, quite a cynical bunch here. Well, we're women alive in the world. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> we're gonna... And I think, look, I... I I, I actually, I don't take a totally pessimistic view of it. I mean, I think it's important to know to the stuff, but then like there are things that we can do. I mean, we're not going to solve all the problems, but you know, there, there are good strategies that can help really um, reduce harm, minimize risks. You know, everything that Janice said about having um, strong passwords, two-factor authentication, password managers, everybody should be using Signal, um, ideally with, with disappearing messages turned on just cause you never know. Um, lots of people should use Tor browser. It's a little bit more, you know, a little, a little bit more inconvenience, I think versus privacy trade-off. Um, but, uh, but it works really well. And there's a whole bunch of other things like that, that I think are becoming more ubiquitous and more usable. That's yeah. great. Um, and we can put some links up with the episode once we post this too. So if you want to um, pass along any like good resources or websites for people to learn more about this or get step-by-step instructions, I think that would probably be helpful. Yeah. The Tor browser, the Tor browser, especially because the Tor browser, like I, I use, I use Tor. Um, cool. For, for listeners, it basically obscures um, where, like it obscures the user's location and IP address. So like you can't really, it, you know, when I'm searching for something online and I'm using, and I'm, I'm on tour instead of my regular Chrome browser, um, they can't really tell where I am because there's like a relay that goes around from the IP addresses. It bounces off from IP addresses all over the world. So it's very hard to pinpoint people that way. Um, so we will put that link up on how to install it and use it. Please, please look into it and please, please use it. The only thing you should be Googling on your other browsers is how to be a California drifter. <laughs> That's right. Create a lot of noise. Just over and over again. Make the same search every day. Same time. And maybe like do, ca- to throw them off, Google like um, where to find single and like available alt-right men. And then they'll be super confused <laughs> yeah. about who you are. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right um so in conclusion it sounds like the men have pretty much ruined the entire internet and maybe what we should be doing is creating our own version of the whole ass internet kind of like that co-working space the wing for women and just like don't invite any men cosine let's not forget though that women were some of the first computer programmers so they just the thing is men just try to take it from us and we just have to take it back. That's right. That's true. That's true. That's very just, true. I just feel like they ruined it, but maybe we can. <laughs> My stepdaughter is named for Ada Lovelace, and I will find nice. a man who says, "Yeah, men invented the internet because they didn't." Cheat it. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> Wait, I thought it was Al Gore. It's not Al Gore. It's so confusing. No, no. Um, <laughs> definitely Ada Lovelace. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you again to our amazing guests. This has been so interesting and surprisingly fun and hilarious. Um, as always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Listen, rate, review on iTunes. And if you can, slide us some money on Patreon, especially if you're of the dude persuasion. We also have merch back up on the website at seasonofthebee.com. So that's it. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.